You ever had a moment in your life when you wish for everything that you could go over that last moment? Just as somewhat a, a painfully humorous accounting, I remember one time I was backing out of our carport, somewhat in a hurry, backing out, and as I quickly backed out, my car stopped with a thud. A sickening thud because I remembered that I had parked the other car right in that spot I had backed into. Get out of my car and in one fell swoop in one instant both my cars damaged. Trying to explain to the insurance agent how it is that both my cars were damaged. Well who was the other driver? I was sir. So who is that fault? (laughs) Yes, both accounts. One moment. Just like that. He's like, how quick? In one second, your money just gets depleted. Your car is both damaged. And we could kind of sense with me that, man, if I could just press reverse just for a little bit. How I could have changed the course of things. That feeling of remorse and you never can go back. That's just a tip. A humor tip. But when we see in the scripture, the Bible describes a moment. A time that will take place of such eternal remorse. That is painful for us to read. It's painful for us to think about. I would ask you, when was the last time you heard a sermon on hell? Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about hell, the truth about hell. It is painful for us to imagine, but I'm going to ask that we do so. And at the same time, I want us to understand the comfort that is found, even with this truth about hell. You ask the common person, do you believe on hell? Some might say yes. Most, by and large, will say no. No. But most will believe in a sense of justice. Most every nation, society has a sense of justice, and I would bring to your attention that they are connected. I never forget my sophomore, junior year in college, sitting in a classroom of which I knew most of the people. This was in my communication field. I'd been in classes with them for numbers of years. Uh, And so one of the professors uh, came and described his ethnic study, uh, his ethnic people group of a a religious people group um, that he called entitled the No Hellers. This was uh, a group of people that were in the, the Wilkesboro area of, uh, area of North Carolina and just studying uh, them. And he said they're a very happy group of people. Um, and so as you can imagine, the name described their belief system. And uh, to kind of set the stage, he uh, described hell in a very uh, painful room tormenting description of what the Bible describes. 
of talking about this everlasting place of torment that anyone can go there and such literal and then he looked at me and my buddy my roommate because he knew that we believed and followed Jesus Christ that we believed in the Bible and after describing the hell looked at me and the classroom of my peers and asked me Jared do you believe in hell And for a moment, I just kind of wanted to disintegrate into the floor so that no one was looking at me. Because I had to be true to what I've said that I believed. But here was the agonizing moment. It wasn't some sense of mortification of, yeah, I believe in hell, of some embarrassing uh, acknowledgement what was destroying me was in that moment I was exposed see these people that I was with for three years had come to know but not once had shared the gospel with I was exposed because I believed that if you did not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior that this Destiny that my professor Dorgan described for me was where everyone was going. And I let everyone know. So I want you to imagine for a moment the people around you who you know, your acquaintances, your family, your friends. And as we read what we're about to read, what if they knew that you believed what I'm about to read to you. How would they think about you? About your attempts of loving them, of sharing truth with them. Just some thoughts as we continue in this. What does the Bible have to say about this? I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. This is what the Bible describes as the final state. Revelation chapter 20, as the end of this chapter, and then in chapter 21, the final state of mankind before God. Uh, So this is not just what happens to you when you die, but this is the conclusion of the matter, what God is working toward. And there is such a place as what's described as the lake of fire, as well as uh, a new heaven, a new earth. And so I want us to consider this, what the end is. And so I'm going to ask that we stand as we read this together. We're going to focus really beginning on verse 10. I know as I read verse 7 and 9, it's going to bring a whole other issue of a thousand year reign as the Bible describes. That really is totally a different sermon. Uh, And so I won't be able to talk about that. But uh, let's begin with verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And you come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. The number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camps of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And this is where my focus will begin. 
And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the fire, uh, the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You may be seated. So this is what the Bible says, the second death, the first death being our biological death, uh, physical death, but the second death is, is total, absolute. Whereas in the first death, just the body dies, the spirit continues. Uh, in this death, the uh, body is resurrected, but then condemned forever, spirit and body forever, uh, against or away from God. And this is the final death. And so as we look at this, as we read through this Revelation passage, I want us to to see what's here. And as we looked at last week, the truth about Satan, a powerful being. Here we see his demise. And so first, as we look at the truth about hell, it is first the removal of the leader. There is a removal of the leader. You need to understand that when hell was created, hell was not created for mankind. That was not the intention of it. In fact, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus describes hell and says that hell was prepared for the devil. And then in verse 34, we find that the kingdom of heaven was prepared for people. But mankind was given a choice. And there have been many who have chosen to follow after this leader, the devil, Satan, the accuser, the deceiver, the different titles that we've seen for him. One of the things I brought out last week is that we saw some of the power of Satan. And we see this in Job chapter 1, that God has granted him uh, some degree of power, not over physical health, but even the natural elements. As we saw the work of Satan and the working of Job's life of even great storms that come to be. I think about that as we, as we consider the earthquake that has occurred in, in Ecuador and that there are right now searches going on to try to find uh, dead people and to rescue people. And I, I think about this and, and sometimes we think, well, you know, how can God do these things? How can God allow these things? And I think one of the things that we often don't look at is the role of Satan in these things. There has been permission granted for a season, but there is certainly, according to Job chapter 1, the influence of Satan in the natural elements that has been done because sin entered into the fabric of human life and the natural world. And so when I think about the removal of the leader, there is great rejoicing that should take place. There is a healthy hatred for the follower of Christ against Satan and sin. In fact, there is a hatred of sin that is required for happiness. Just something for us to consider uh, in this. 
And so when we read this passage, there is within this a, a triumph as we read Revelation chapter 20. We see the work of Satan even in the Garden of Eden right from the get-go. And so in chapter 20 is a reversing that we see in the Garden of Eden. Part of that is the prophecy given to Satan uh, there in Genesis 3.15. We see the final conclusion right here. So we see that this is the end of of the, the source of so much misery. Now, I mentioned to you that, that hell is a part of our sense of justice. One of the things we have to understand is that with the removal of the leader is the removal of sin itself, of justice being served. You know, some people will say, you know, how can you believe in God who lets all these terrible things happen. You can bring, look at safe trade, horrible suffering around the world, the natural disasters that, that occur. We see the tyranny of mankind. Uh, and you know, we ask the question, well, do you believe in hell? And someone said, well, no, I don't really believe in hell. And I said, well, what about Hitler? It's, it's funny how we, most of the world over will agree, yeah, yeah Hitler needs to go to hell. There, there definitely is a sense of eternal judgment that we can see there is a degree of sin. The tricky part that people have uh, is to figure out where's that line at. Hell, uh, Hitler deserves hell. What about his associates? Yeah, they, they deserve hell. Well, what about some of the other people in Germany who were taking part in the... And, and so we start to figure out, well, where's the line at? And that's the tricky part, isn't it? The Bible describes that sin is going to be judged in its entirety, including the evil that's inside of humans. And so here, you got this idea, okay, the horrible suffering, this injustice that happens in this world, if you say that you cannot believe in a God who lets all these terrible things happen, then you've got a bigger problem now. If you don't believe in a God that allows these things to happen, then how on earth do you have any sense of justice at all? This is the idea that Martin Luther King Jr. was appealing to in, in his Birmingham, letters from a Birmingham cell, where he said, you know, there is laws that are unjust because they do not match up with who God is. This is the idea that was behind William Wilberforce to say there is a sense of injustice that's being done. I appeal to God. This is the idea that is behind even the Declaration of, of Independence. When you read that, there is uh, the understanding, the framework that there was injustice being done and it did not match who we knew God was and the sense of justice that we've got. There's a, a fellow by the name of uh, Miroslav Volf who is a Croatian and he is a professor at Yale. He wrote this interesting uh, piece. He says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Do you hear that? This idea of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. He said, my thesis would be unpopular with many people in Western society. But imagine speaking to people as I have in Croatia, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. What do you say to them? Don't retaliate. Why not retaliate? Don't take the vengeance. Why not, they say. I say this, the only means of prohibiting violence by us 
is to insist God alone has the right to judge. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God is not going to do it. It takes the quiet of the suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is the result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. To something for us to consider, because I know we live in the suburb, and we, if we, even those of us who believe in the Bible, will say, yeah, okay, there's that, but I don't know if I really grab hold of it. I think it's because we've lived with peace and quiet for so long that we don't really get to see firsthand the evils that are in this world. And they are there. So there is going to be a removal of the leader, and this is where hell was created for this purpose. But as we keep on reading, we're going to find something else. Not only is there a removal of the leader, then you see, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Not only is there a removal of the leader, there is the removal of the stage itself. The stage itself. It, you see, all of earth, all that you know, is being removed. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10 through 12 says this. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. But the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. You read this passage and you need to understand. All that we know is going to be one day removed. And the only thing that will remain is God and you. I was looking at the pictures of 9-11 this past week one of my daughters was asking me about that it's did you know that's history now that's part of your study in history um, for those of us who remember it well those who are in high school really have no memory of it before and so it was bringing back memories painful memories and just because I'm morbid this way I Kind of sulking a little bit more and look at the pictures. And I just remember how looking at the scene and you see this ash cloud coming. It just seemed like the end of the earth. Here's New York City and it's on fire. And it's just, it was just this stark reminder of the World Trade Center buildings to say that nothing's too good. Nothing's too big. Nothing's too powerful that with just one second it can be taken from you. And in that moment in time, in fact, for a, a season, there was this check in reality uh, uh, across America where we realized what really does matter. 
And you see the pictures and, and the people that you can tell they were dressed in their finery and uh, uh, the, the woman in Ash with their pearls on and her hair done right and her business outfit on, but she's covered in ash. And this stark contrast of a stylish woman covered in ash and just the reality of that. And in 2015, that woman passed away from stomach cancer. And it's just this this scene, this memory. And I think that's just nothing in comparison to what's being described here. Just absolutely nothing in comparison to what is talking about on a worldwide stage. And every once in a while, I'll drive and I'll look and I just imagine everything I'm seeing just removed. Just removed. And the only thing that is there now is me and God. You're not a rich man anymore. You're not a married person anymore. You're not a daughter anymore. You're not a son anymore. You're not a father. You're not, a, uh, you're, you're not any of these things that we hold on to as identity. We're not a businessman. We're not doing our job. We're, we're not these things. I'm not a preacher anymore. I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not any of these things because all these things are removed. It's just you. It's just God. The money's gone, the house's gone, the family's not a family anymore. Because everyone is individually accountable before God. I don't go to before God and say, well, look at my dad and look at my mom and look what they did to me and this is why I am. No. It's just you and God. It's all been removed. And then... We come as we keep on reading. This has all been removed. Verse 1, or rather verse 11, and the verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. This is a resurrection. Do you know everyone will be resurrected? All will be resurrected. Some resurrected to be judged and condemned. That's the accounting here in Revelation 20. You see, our bodies do matter. Some people think, well, you know, it's all just spirit. It doesn't really matter what you do with your body anyway. If that's the case, then why is there a resurrection of the body? Why did God come in the flesh? Why did God make the flesh? See, your body matters. How you take care of your body, what you do with your body, God's interested in very interested in how do I know that because he's going to resurrect it and so there's there's resurrection and it doesn't really matter what your status is great or small looking over a poem it's a poem about Roger Williams written by uh, African American and just bringing out this idea I went to the grave of Roger Williams and this the thought of an apple tree planted near his grave and absorbing the fruit or the body of Roger Williams and, and to actually eat of the remains through eating an apple tree. And this, this idea of just being absorbed into the ground makes you wonder what you're eating when you eat of the vegetables and fruits, you know? <laughs> makes you think. But you see, that's not the conclusion of the matter. We're, we're not just food for the worms. 
The Bible says there's going to be something else. It doesn't really matter what your status is, great and small. It doesn't matter whether you were homeless, had no wealth whatsoever, or whether you were a great, powerful man. In fact, Luke chapter 16 is Jesus telling a story of a rich man and Lazarus. And, and in that story, he never says it's a parable. He just says this is what happened. And he talks about hell. And interesting that Lazarus has a name. He was the one that was a beggar. He was the one that was a beggar. The rich man, he has no name. Because his name doesn't count anymore. He's separated from God. But Lazarus has a name. That's why for Christians in a Christian worldview, we don't look at the handicapped and think, well, they're just handicapped. We don't look at the widows and say, well, they're just widows. They don't have any influence. We can't, we don't do that. We don't look at the people who are homeless. One of the things that, that uh, some of the team will share, I don't want to steal the thunder, but they, they were able to see uh, someone that was homeless come to know the Lord. And we rejoice in that. The powerful of this world does not rejoice because the homeless have no influence. But listen, the Bible says great and small would be brought before God. That's why in the Christian worldview, believers take care of the great and the small. Because there is an counting of all. And then we keep on reading. There's this mention of these books. So we've got the removal of the leader, the removal of the stage itself. Then you, there's the resurrection of, of a body to be judged. How will they be judged? Verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened. Singular, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So the Bible describes two systems by which you will be judged. One, plural, books, according to your deeds. Another, singular, a book of life. So let's talk about the plural to understand there will be a review of your life. Before there is a final state of condemnation, there is a review of your life. C.S. Lewis has said that when it's all described at the end, looking at two different types of people, there'll be one who, as a man will say to God, thy will be done. Or... God will say to man, okay, your will be done. In hell, it is these who are condemned who basically are saying to God, God, I do not want your will, and God grants to them what, he wish, what they wish. We understand this, even as parents, working with our children, sometimes the best consequences is just to let them, let them get what they want. Okay, you want to eat? Three cups of ice cream. All right. We don't have to go anywhere for the next 10 hours, so go ahead. <laughs> and then, interesting enough, they don't like ice cream again. What, what is that? It's a consequence of actions. But then even, we understand, though, they're like, well, yeah, I see you want to experiment. You want to see what happens when you put that, that little metal pin in that electrical outlet. But you, yeah, that's not a good idea. And so, so we remove them from that. And so there's a part where our... our 
uh, mercy as a parent is to keep them from their will. So in hell, God has been working in our life to keep us from our will. But when hell comes, God is saying to him, okay, stick the metal pin in the socket. Let's see where it goes. Interesting enough, in Luke chapter 16, when Jesus is recounting the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man, even in torment, never asked to leave. Isn't that interesting? I mean, if you're going to ask miracles like, you know, hey, Lazarus, why don't you send uh, Lazarus back to tell my brothers uh, and warn them? But he never once says, hey, can you let me go back? He, he's there on his own. He never even asked to leave because he's getting what he wants That is, I want to be separate. I want to be independent from God. Listen, we can understand this just even with our own room. Let's just take any grumbling, lying, you pick it, pride. What if God allowed you to go down that course of your sin without any restraint whatsoever? What would the grumbly turn you into? You become a monster. Just God allowing you to have sin work its way in your life. And so hell then becomes a place where it is totally separate from God. Sometimes we think, oh, okay, that sounds, you know, we, we have these little uh, caricatures of, you know, <laughs> someone in chains up against a wall, you know. Um, are you, you have these pictures of flames and, and you got all the other sinners around. Like, oh, that sounds good. I'm going to be with my buddies. You understand that the best things that we've got in life are just fingerprints of God. Love, joy, pleasure, enjoyment of life and the things that we've got, the things that God has created. These are, these are things that are of God. When God is removed, love is removed, joy is removed is removed adventure is removed you're talking about think well heaven sounds really boring do you understand that adventure and excitement and adrenaline was made by god have you thought about that so when god's removed all those things are removed you know what dull is life without god so hell becomes the separation of everything from god it is some people ask what do you really believe in a, a hell with fire and brimstone? I said, well, first of all, that's what the Bible describes it as. Verse 10, thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. It's, I'm reading in black and white right here. So uh, help me understand what, what else could it be. But I said, well, it's just a metaphor. Okay. What's it a metaphor of? <laughs> I'm just going to say... That fire and sulfur is the least worst scenario. Whatever is a metaphor of is going to be a lot, lot worse than just fire and brimstone. So, you say, well, I had one person ask me, do you you really believe believe the Bible is literal? I said, well, yeah, if properly interpreted, yeah. Okay, well, let's just go metaphorically, and it gets worse here with hell. And just, just something for us to consider as, as we look in this. 
And so there's this recounting of your life. And as you read this, you're going to look through your life and you're going to start from the get-go from God's plan and, and the place you were settled in where God puts you. And you're going to see in the recounting of your life, the books of your life, how God's hand has been around you, working you. And you're going to see your thoughts. You're going to see your decisions. You're going to see your actions. It's going to be recounted before you and before God. And you're going to see that hell is the greatest moment in the history of the world to human freedom. Hell is the greatest moment in human history of human freedom. And you're going to see that in this world that God has made, that you have rejected him at every turn. Are you prepared for that? Some people say, well, you know, you could, you could grow up in a cave, live all your life in a cave, and you could say to someone, I don't believe there is a sun. I've never seen it. It's always dark in my cave. It's always kind of cool. But let me just bring to your thought, what if there really was no sun? You thought it was cold in your cave before? Now <laughs> you die instantly because of the, the coldness. You see, as we live our life, we think, well, there's no God. There's no God. Listen, you're about to experience, if you continue down that road, you're going to see what it is to have no God. You're going to realize all the charms that God has been putting in your life. We keep on reading here. You're going to see, you're going to see your, your good deeds. You can say, well, well, you know, God, what about when I went to church? What about when I gave money away? What about when I try to treat people nicely and kindly? Isaiah 64, verse 6 and 7 says, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our unrighteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away, and there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs up himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have consumed us because of our iniquities. In other words, our our good deeds will be seen as attempts to kind of get over God and say, God, you owe me because I've done good things. That's how our heart works. We're thinking we're doing good. We're really just trying to manipulate God. And they will be exposed for all of that. One of the things that hit me when I realized, and I read this passage, and I knew it wasn't any more facades that I could do there would be a point where my secrets would be exposed and all my reputation would finally be done over with. And it would be very clear before me, before God, and anyone else that God will be completely just to say, you are to be forever removed from me. Why the recounting? To declare the justice of God when his people are removed, or the people are removed. But then there's one more book. Singular, the book of life. There is a recounting of those with eternal life. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written, and the book of life, 
he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's interesting, this book of life, it's mentioned several times. Philippians 4, verse 3 says, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose name are in the book of life. The book of life is an, is an understanding, a metaphor of saying, hey, these people are in Christ. They're trusting not in their works. They, they say, take the books of, of my deeds away from me, because there is no hope for me in my book of deeds. I do not go by the book of deeds. I want something else, another basis. I plead for the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. Let that be my standard. And God says, those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who say, I need Jesus, I need forgiveness, I need uh, the righteousness that comes not by my works, but by God granting it to me through Jesus, I need that. God says that's, those are the ones that he is counting as, as the book of life. And so it's interesting, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, he recounts this idea to help two women get along in the church. Isn't that interesting? The motivation for church Harmony is that we're found in the book of life. It's interesting. The greatest gulf that could be spanned is that between you and God, and God bridged it. And it is our joy, it is our motivation, and it becomes our strength in getting along with people when it's hard. Revelation chapter 3 verse 5, the same book that we're looking at. He who ever comes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. It become the basis of God's boasting. Isn't it amazing? Get over that. It's hard to get over that. God will boast over you. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> what was your basis for God boasting over you? I just acknowledge my need before God. And I've seen him work in my life. And God will boast over such like that. Revelation chapter 17 verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will send out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Luke chapter 10 verse 20. Jesus said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And it is our basis for joy. It doesn't matter how effective you become as a follower of Christ and you see fruit around you. The basis of our joy will always be that God is saving us. You know when he said that? It was right after the disciples went out and they performed exorcisms they saw people get healed is that correct what if God gave you the power today to confront someone who is influenced by Satan and God used you to set that person free or perhaps God put you in a place where there was blind people and God used you to give sight to them how might that change your perspective and mindset what Jesus is saying is however way you think it will do is nothing in comparison to what this is doing that God is saving us. That is our basis. The book of life. So if your name's not written there and the recounting of God looking at you and you are not depending on him, you're not knowing the mercy of Christ in your life, these are the ones that are cast into the lake of fire.
You see, of all the things that a person did, the thing that condemned them was they did not trust in Jesus. Their name was not written. Therefore, they were thrown into the lake of fire. Why eternal punishment? It has to be eternal punishment to fit the crime. You see, man was made in God's image with the conscience and reason. And God placed man in his image in God's handiwork, in his earth, his universe, where day unto day knowledge is going out, night unto night shows forth God's handiwork. As many days have you been alive has been as many days as you've been exposed to God's handiwork in your life. So though you were made in God's image, with God's handiwork all around, knowing that this design required the designer, yet still you renounced God by saying, let my will be done, not yours. The greatest folly is to be surrounded by truth, by morality, to be surrounded by beauty, to be surrounded by love. With a very mind made by God. And to say with that same mind there is no God. For he is not moral. According to whose standard is God not moral? With what brain that God gave you? The greatest folly. The greatest gift was given to us in the Son of God. And we could have escaped this wrath of God. With just an easy gift of saying, God, I trust in you. And the ultimate shame can never be forgiven. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28 through 31 says this, anyone who has rejected Moses Law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose would be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. I just say this to you here, sitting in these pews. The greatest condemnation will lie with these who sit here with us, who have been exposed week in, week out to a Savior, to the truth, and yet say with our heart and mind, we want something else. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake the way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. There's a poem that was made called The Wish Wand. I had a little wish wand and waved it to and fro. Whenever thoughts turn heavenward or the place, other place you go, I thought it safe to trust it with my whole eternal soul. So I wish the life I lived on earth would get me to my goal. I wish that all would get to heaven, whatever they believed, that Buddha sat at God's right hand, 
that new age be received. I wish that Paul would change his mind that Jesus wasn't right because he spoke of lostness in a dark eternal night and about the way to heaven, one truth, one narrow gate. And I was so broad-minded that I wished away my faith. So wave my little wish wand and the radiant face of him who met me at the gate of heaven and wouldn't let me in. I wrote to heaven's congressman, but he courteously replied that I should have left my wish wand at the feet of him who died. For wishes could not wish away a lifetime of rejection. And wishes could not dress my soul in heaven's own perfection. And wishes could not save me now, for hell was so obscene that wishes there die ghastly deaths and strangled with a scream. So I took my little wish wand into hell the day I died. And I waved it at the serpent as he slithered to my side. It was dark, but I could see him, and all I knew was fear. And no matter how I waved my wand, he wouldn't disappear. Oh, I wish that I wished to write. I wished I lived again. I wish I had a body that was whole, not racked with pain. I wish I could remember something other than the dirt. I wish I could forget my sin, so every memory hurt. Oh, I wished and wished and wished that I could have another chance to cast upon the crucified a trusting, saving glance. But the devil took my wish wand, and he laughed right in my face. I went to live eternally in darkness and disgrace. I never wished a wish again. I had no heart to try, for hell is where hope ended and where all my wishes died. The existence of hell speaks not just of the justice of God, but I want to tell you the existence of hell speaks to the love of God. If there's no hell, and Jesus died on the cross, what did he save us from? You see, I know the love of Jesus by what he endured. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was at that moment he was acknowledging the existence of hell in his life. You understand the greatest loss that we have is by the ones we love the most. Right now, we may not be impacted much by the fact that 77 people have counted dead in Ecuador. We didn't know them. Like Donnie, if our brother died this past week, that hits us hard. It's those we love the most that we, we feel it the most. So how can you imagine Jesus being forever with God? Forever, that there's an intimacy of love that we can only just scratch the surface here on this earth. And in that moment of time, he loses the Father and he becomes our sin. He endures the hell. How do I know that Jesus loves me? Because I know there's a hell that exists. And he endured it. If there is no hell, then I'm just being sentimentality here. You need to understand, as you think of the people in your life, what if they were here with you right now, and they heard me just talk, and they asked you on the way home, do you believe what he said? 